Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. We sort of get into this, you know, relational model and look when it's working, when sex is a form of intimacy and merging and uh, lovemaking and a really, um, you know, dissolution of self boundaries. I mean, it's fantastic. It's such a, a relation, a relationship boost and an expression of love that only sex can provide. But very often, you know, relational sex can become really rote, it can become really, uh, predictable. It can stop serving our need for kind of sexual expansiveness, which is what recreational sex can do, right? Embracing the kinky aspects of sex, embracing variety, embracing that psychological stimuli, right? I think that's where, especially for heterosexual couples, we don't know how to integrate the relational with the recreational. So says Dr. Ian Kerner, my guest today, and a licensed psychotherapist and nationally recognized sexuality counselor who specializes in sex therapy, couples therapy, and relational issues. Ian is a New York Times bestselling author of She Comes First, The Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman, and the co-founder and co-director of the sex therapy program at the Institute for Contemporary Psychology. Today, we discuss his newest book, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex laying bare and learning to repair our love lives. As Ian shares the unique methodology he has used in his sex therapy practice to help countless couples rewrite their sex script in order to actualize their sexual potential. We don't know how to talk about sex, Ian tells us. We have erotic minds but encounter shame around communicating what is in them, leaving us open to impersonal, predictable sex that stops serving our needs for sexual expansiveness. To avoid falling victim to the plague of rote sex, we must rediscover touch, desire, and fantasy, he tells us. 
by reimagining and rewriting our sex scripts to include both the physical and psychological components of arousal, the promised land of mutual pleasure is within reach. Ian gives us the tools to get comfortable with the discourse around intercourse and leaves us with the stepping stones to bridge the gap between the sex we are having and the sex we want to be having. Okay, let's get to our conversation. So we'll primarily talk about, tell me about the last time you had sex, but obviously we can go beyond it. Although it is kind of an encyclopedia of sex. I have to say, I was showing my husband diagrams and I was like, if you ever wanted to know, it's like the sex ed (laughs) that we never had. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's my most recent book and it really came out of me as a whole. Like I, I didn't have to work as hard on it as I thought I'd have to work on a book because it just came out really organically and holistically. And I really wanted to recreate the experience of being in sex therapy with me. And I realized that it it does cover somehow like a lot of material. And the only other book I've ever written that I felt that way about was She Comes First, which also just kind of, you know, just kind of came out of a place of sort of needing to be written. It's wild, even just as someone who spent years working in the wellness industry and thinking about health from every single angle. And even now, I'm like, I mean, there's so many things that I don't know. So snaps to you. I thought the book was revelatory and really interesting. And obviously, you span the spectrum of experiences. And I can't, I would imagine that the timing is exquisite as we find ourselves in whatever it is, month 18th, 19th, 20th, like who is counting of this pandemic when we're forced into intimacy or living without intimacy? You must be very busy. Yeah, I am very busy. There hasn't been much rest or peace. You know, you know what's happened with COVID is that so many of the factors that can affect our libidos or diminish our libidos are sort of concurrently occurring, you know, for example, um, just not eating as well or being able to exercise or hold on to those routines, that can really take a toll on libido. Just not having your self-esteem where you want it to be, like walking around in your pajamas or dealing with someone who's walking around in their pajamas, you know, not feeling sexy in any way, you know, and then relational issues, being on top of each other and feeling claustrophobic or being so near experience and not, you know, having any outlets or any external energy all of those things on their own at any given time can really affect our sexuality, our own sense of self-sexuality, our relationships. And so to have these all occurring, you know, sort of concurrently at once is really taken a tremendous impact, has had a tremendous impact on people. And it's not that COVID is creating new issues in my experience. There aren't like new sex problems that are just specifically COVID related. It's that all of the um, usual issues that people might face, such as mismatched libidos or low desire or sexual function issues, just experiencing pleasure are all really getting amplified, right? It's an amplification. So if anything, after 19 months, it's sort of like, how do we dig ourselves out of this and actually get sexy and get light and embrace Eros. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And I don't want to belabor COVID, but at the beginning, I was like, I wonder what's happening to people who are engaged in extramarital affairs or in other sort of maybe 
sexual addictions, like what is happening? Or who suddenly are like, I have no space for my spouse to engage in these things that were, it has to have been an extra challenging time for people who. Right. So if you're, if you're, if you're cheating, as many people are, you probably already have sort of an ethical quandary. Like, should I be cheating? Like, you probably have a reason that you feel gives you the right to cheat. But now you have a, 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 another ethical quandary, which is like, am I going to potentially kill this person with a, <laughs> you know, a virus? So yes, it's been uh, very difficult. It's been very difficult for people in open marriages, people who are polyamorous, people who enjoy non-monogamy in any way. It's been very problematic for singles who sort of found themselves isolated and not having access to sexual partners. It's also been challenging for singles who were only dating somebody for a week or two who suddenly got together and got a house up in Woodstock and a dog. And now they're like, what the hell did we do? Like, you know, so I'm seeing like, I'm seeing just every side of it. I've had so many um, COVID relationships that sort of began with COVID and they're in couples therapy, they're in sex therapy. So it'll, it didn't take long to get here. Yeah, it probably feels a bit like those long distance relationships that so many of us had, you know, in college or wherever, where you're on that that fast track to intimacy, right? Because you're just like talking so much in this highly primed, extreme period that I can imagine on the other side as you re-enter life and start to see your friends again and suddenly you have to introduce them to your new partner of a year and a half. It's interesting. It's, I'm sure there will be many movies and, and TV shows that come out of it. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned inhibitors, which in so many ways the book seems to be a little bit about that, like in your, ex- or entirely about that, so, sort of as a thesis, that it's these, the ways that we are inhibited that get in the way of, I guess, full, not only sexual, sexuality or expression of sexuality, but an ability to even know what we're about as sexual beings. Is that, yeah, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the big themes of the book is that we don't really know how to talk about sex, that, uh, you know, we were sort of raised and socialized in so many areas of our lives to to talk about problems, to solve issues, to communicate. We have, you know, hopefully an expansive vocabulary and sex is such an important area, but we just didn't, we didn't get the language and we didn't get the mirroring, you know? And so think about it, like throughout life, as we grow up, we're hopefully getting mirrored, scaffolded, supported. And then we sort of arrive at sort of being like, sexual adults and it becomes something that's tremendously important and we just we don't have the language we don't have the ability to communicate and so almost automatically we are living with shame right we're living with something inside of us that we can't necessarily normalize or connect with around so yeah i work with a in my work with with couples especially it's, it's often their First, they, the people who might have been together five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, have often been living with silent desperate, living in silent desperation, like inches next to each other on the bed, but but just not talking about this stuff. And and this is very often the first place where they're communicating and really getting some language to wrap around their experience. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? 
from someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with cozy earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code thread at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. What I also thought was so interesting, and I don't know if this is gendered and more true for women, but I would imagine it is to some extent, when you talked about the importance of touch and how you were citing the work of Linda Weiner Mm -hmm. and Constant Avery Clark and talking about how, and this has certainly been my experience of what is appropriate touch and the way that touch suddenly becomes highly sexualized and supercharged when you sort of go through puberty, right? And for so many girls, women, it's like you have to give everyone a hug who asks for a hug. There's this lack of consent around touch, which also I think becomes very confusing. And and they write about and you write about how we need to relearn the importance of touch as also a non-sexual just mechanism for love and, and intimacy. And so we can sort of understand the differences? Is that something that comes up a lot? Yes. So we do need to be more comfortable with touch and we do need to learn to touch. And, you know, certainly in this era today for singles, touch becomes, you know, more complicated and there's more fear and anxiety around touch. And that fear and anxiety translates, you know, into into sexual problems. And so certainly um, looking at the, the work that you cited is they are practitioners of sensate focus, which is a way of sort of getting relaxed during sex and re- reintroducing touch in ways that aren't anxiety provoking and, and are incremental kind of exposure therapy. And that, that can be you know, very important. The thing that I have found though, with a lot of couples, it's so how do you take touch and how do you combine that with eroticism? How do you 
put some sizzle in that touch? How do you tune in sexually, right? We don't want to be touched in non-sexual ways, right? I work with so many couples who come in and they can cuddle, they can spoon each other. Sometimes they can spoon each other completely naked and uh, be in bed or they can take showers together, they can hug but the relationship is sexually inert, right? So sometimes we can also have a kind of a, a touch that's disconnected from, from eroticism. So I think it's also in my work, focusing on sexuality, it's also about introducing eroticism into our lives and, and how we manifest it and how we project it and how we communicate it. Most couples want that in touch when it comes to sex. Yeah. No, it's such an interesting, I don't know, there was something about it that was a bit of an unlock for me in the sense of also, yeah, being able to to separate platonic touch, intimate touch, sexual touch. And we, in the same way that we lack the language from our poor sexual educations, or right. as you mentioned, not having things mirrored to us appropriately, I think that there's confusion, or at least I feel like... And I, I probably had sort of the the normal amount of trauma as most women, at least, but where it gets very confusing about what kind of touch is this in a way that makes me want to, sh- you know, be like, don't touch me at all. Right. Well, you know, what, <laughs> you know what else is fascinating to me is that, and this this definitely connects to touch and how much space we're allocating for touch is that I would say of the heterosexual couples that I work with, and my practice is right now probably about. 55 to 60% heterosexual, couples of all ages, and then queer folks. If I'm working with the heterosexual couples, probably, and my book is called, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex, uh, that's the title. So if I'm asking that to a heterosexual couple, more than 90% of them are going to include intercourse. We had intercourse in some form or we tried to have intercourse. And if I ask them, well, how long did it take you from the moment of it someone initiated sex to get to intercourse? Surprisingly, most of the couples that I work with get there pretty much in under five minutes if I had to average it out. So we're not really creating much of a space to let touch flourish, at least if we're talking about heterosexual couples. And what I found fascinating is that there was um, a study of gay men and about 25,000 gay men were asked to sort of describe their most recent sexual event. And and of that, only 35% had intercourse. So it's like, so so what were the other 65% doing? They were engaging in a lot more touch-based activities for a lot longer period of time. You know, they were going from an intercourse model really to an outer course model and putting sex together, putting a what I call a sex script, sort of the sequence of things that happen during sex, putting those together in much more novel and personalized ways that really integrate the importance of touch. So I, I think a big issue too, focusing on one kind of touch, penis and vagina intercourse and, and just not developing the facility to explore other types of touch. Why do you think that that is? Why are gay men so much more creative? Well, I think it's it's actually, I found it's true of gay men, it's true of lesbians, it's true of um, trans folks. I, I think it's almost true of anyone who's not part of that sort of heteronormative intercourse discourse is that you've you've been erotically marginalized and that sucks and you have to deal with a lot of shame. You have to sometimes, you have to come out of the closet, but 
they're also not subscribing to the same set of rules that we've been socialized and and internalized with so and have internalized so i think that there's just a feeling of being able to make your own rules being able to more follow your instincts in the moment i think more thinking and talking about your sexuality allows you to communicate that so you're already more prone to having sexual conversation so i would just say that it's like the fabulous experience of feeling like you're off road because that's not the road that you wanted to be on or that you've been on yeah no, it's so interesting, too, in that it goes to that discussion that you start the book with about reactive desire versus responsive desire. No. Yeah. Yes. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And how this idea that men are reactive, which isn't true. Obviously, some women are as well. But that is certainly the script, right, that we've given to non-heteronormative men in particular, that they're hypersexual, hyperactive. And so in a way, it's probably liberating, even if they're not, to not have to at least break the mold of being a responsive woman, for example, where you're used to being desired, but not used to being desiring, which is so often what we teach young girls in particular. Yeah, I mean, desire issues, especially with heterosexual couples are, are the number one issue I deal with, uh, <clears throat> you know, desire discrepancy. And, and we're so quick to label our partners, I want to be wanted, why doesn't she initiate? Why doesn't she want to like, you know, rip my clothes off? Or why is it always like sex, sex, sex? And like, everything is so sex oriented. And, you know, what about appreciating me as a as a fuller person? And, you know, I'm not just a, a you know, a set of boobs and a vagina and an ass, you know, and so we <laughs> label, and we bring all of these associations. And, and first of all, I, I think that we are much more flexible and fluid in our sexuality. So we, you talk about like, in the book, I talk about sort of spontaneous desire or what I call highly reactive desire versus responsive desire, which I consider to be more intentional or deliberative in how you approach sex. I did not by any means create those terms, just so you know. Emily Nagoski wrote a fabulous book called Come As You Are, which is based on the fabulous work of years of research into, especially into female sexuality. And so we sometimes have these different desire frameworks, right? We might be a person who can just take in one sexual cue. Oh, here's my wife getting out of the shower. She looks super cute. I feel that in my body in some way, arousal gets generated in my body and I'm ready to react to that. Now, it's not like if I come out of the shower and my wife sees me that she doesn't think I'm, you know, sexy. It's just that she doesn't metabolize or take in a sexual cue in the same way. You know, context is going to be much more important. The simmering, the percolation of cues. So A, we are often in different desire frameworks and B, we have stereotypes about who falls into those frameworks. And I work with plenty of men who do not experience spontaneous desire and are much more responsive. I meet plenty of women who are in a, in a, in a spontaneous desire framework. So I, I hate when people say like, oh, like I approach sex like a man or, or what man doesn't walk around automatically getting an erection, you know? So I hate when we just, you know, label each other in these yeah. frameworks. 
I think, and this might be a stretch, which you can check me on, but when we fall into these stereotypes, as you call them, too, it's then we get into this wider culture of she made me do it. Or this idea, this like deep idea that's in our patriarchal society that men don't really have control over their own sexuality, that they are so responsive that the a short skirt or a glimmer of leg is enough to incite them to completely lose control, make bad decisions, commit violent crimes against women. There's still this sort of pernicious idea that that women inspire, men respond, and it's the woman's responsibility for inspiring in the first place, which sort of goes back to this stereotype. Right. Well, it also puts a lot of pressure on men. I work with a lot of you know young men who have erectile unpredictability that's of a psychological nature because they're able to masturbate and you know they're able to get erections on their own or they sometimes wake up with erections. And for a while, or we're still, lots of people like to blame porn for that. And somehow I don't totally get the association. Like I've, I've watched porn, so now I'm not ever going to be able to get an erection during partnered sex. You know, we, we could talk about that more. I think that there are tremendous expectations for men to be reactive in their desire, highly mm-hmm. reactive in their desire, and to be able to produce erections that are of a certain quality. And that puts a lot of pressure on men. And I think it's that act, that it's that pressure that is causing such a, a proliferation of uh, erectile unpredictability. So, you know, I think we do internalize these stereotypes and they affect us. What, what's interesting is, you know, in asking people about the last time they had sex, you really go through what, you know, I call the sex script, you know, how things happen. And and what they're feeling and all of these issues, whether they are historical or cultural or around the ways we think we should be having sex, you know, they all come down to, you know, that sex script and they they all happen mm-hmm. there. It's fascinating. And, and you get into this too, as well. I think it's, I don't know if you are talking specifically about Meredith Chiver's research, but you talk about how sort of the miscue. And again, we love this idea of like, oh, if he's around, if he has an erection, then he is aroused. And if she is lubricated, she is aroused. And there's so often a mismatch, right? And the opposite. Oh, if he doesn't have an erection, then he can't possibly feel or be sexual. And then we like to spin that out in really harmful ways of, oh, she wanted it. Or... Right. On the flip side, he isn't into me, or there's something wrong with him. But it's that that misalignment, or maybe the fact that both need to work in tandem in order that for there to really be expression of desire that gets so confusing, because we're such a visual you know, society. To- we're not totally. So the, the phenomenon that you're talking about is arousal non concordance, where, you know, mind and body aren't really aligned, right? So I may have an erection, but but that doesn't mean I'm highly aroused. That doesn't mean I'm ready to be sexual it just means that I I have an erection, you know, and conversely, I could be um, highly aroused and highly engaged and highly interested in sex and and not be able to muster an erection for any number of reasons, right? So mind and body uh, don't always work together. Yes, women, women, a woman can be lubricated, but she might not even know she's lubricated. That might have absolutely nothing to do with desire. In fact, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a biological response so that the, the walls of the vagina don't get torn up during any kind of sex, you know? So 
there is a lot of arousal non-concordance. And, and what I find is, as a culture, when it comes to sex, is that most couples' sex scripts are very much based in, in physical interactions, right? So that we're depending upon physiological arousal, that touch to do all of the work of getting us turned on and, and keeping us turned off. And what's not there is psychological arousal, right? What might be in our heads is, is anxiety, but what's not there is enough psychological you know, arousal. And, and by that, I mean, there are some women who can fantasize their way to orgasms without ever touching themselves. There are Sometimes when I'm working with men around erectile unpredictability and we're trying to figure it out, I'll ask them to next time they're watching porn to keep their hands at their sides and not touch themselves and tell me what happens. And men come back and say, well, after 10 minutes, like I had a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty firm erection, right? So psychological arousal is, is really important to good sex, to quality sex. And we don't know as a culture how to how to create that, except for being in the beginning of a relationship where something is new and novel, and that's the psychological excitement. We don't really know how to co-create and co-construct a psychologically arousing environment with a partner. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I thought it was hilarious. The stats that you cited around how women get bored in relationships so much faster, because obviously there's sort of the counter stereotyping that men 
men get tired really quickly, but whereas it's women. But but in terms of that arousal, and I wanted to go into fantasy and sort of what fantasy can mean for us and what it can show us in a sort of inverse way about what it is that we actually desire, what makes us feel safe or desirable. But do you think that the lack of psychological arousal is primarily from shame and this idea going back to, I can only speak to this as a woman, but if I'm not a sexual, if this is happening to me and I'm not a sexual person or expressing my own desire, then there's, I'm side sidestepping the shame of being a sexually desiring person. Where do you feel like it, where does, why is that getting cut off? You know, again, I think we have very erotic minds. Many of us do have erotic minds, but it does come back down to uh, shame around communicating. I was just with a, a couple today and there was so much confusion between fantasy and reality and what someone wants to fantasize and talk about or or watch versus you know what they want to do we're such um, a sort of action oriented material culture like it's hard to just grasp on to the intangibility of like fantasy and i i think it, it i think ultimately it does come down to uh shame to feeling like we're perverse we're weird we're going to be judged we're 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 uh, deviant in some ways you know there's there's a lot of different yeah. ways in which, you know, shame gets introduced into someone. I can't remember his name. He's a sex therapist or a therapist in San Francisco, but he wrote a book. I think it was called Arousal. Yeah. And yeah, and it's really interesting because he talks about fantasy specifically as the focus of the book and how, for example, for women to fantasize about being dominated, which... I think women immediately go to like, fuck, I don't want to be raped or I like this is bad. This is culturally not what I want. But that really that fantasy is about being forced to be sexual, which I think is really interesting and probably something that a lot of people can relate to. And that typically it bears no resemblance to rape would actually feel like or be like, or that, you know, when the fantasy is about a, a lot of fantasies for women are being forced to be sexual in a way that makes it then pr- acceptable and okay to be sexual, which I thought was so interesting. That was a little bit of a light bulb for me in terms of providing context for why we might shut those things mm-hmm. right. down. Right. It's a framework that provides uh, permission to be desired, permission to be wanted. It, it releases us from our shame in a fantasy world because we're not responsible for it. And I think you talked about an erotic formula for fantasy. Attraction plus obstacles equals excitement. Right. And is that a formula that sort of regardless it holds true, that there has to be some sort of obstacle? No. So <laughs> so in that, I was actually going back to the, the work of you know Jack Marin, who is a, a sex therapist and a researcher who who died. And, uh, you know, he was trying to really sort of deconstruct in the way that Michael Bader did with arousal, like what, what, what are, what is eroticism? What is fantasy? What is its function? And what he sort of came up with was that, that we have core erotic themes, which I, I really do relate to this idea that there are particular scenarios or particular storylines or particular kinds of dynamics like being dominated or dominating that appeal to us more than others and, and, and recur over time and stay with us. So we have core erotic themes. Sometimes those core erotic themes can come from 
a peak experience in which there wasn't an obstacle, or sometimes those core erotic themes emerged because they helped us to work around an obstacle, right? So in that case, you know, our fantasies are our allies in that they, the obstacle is creating the energy for a fantasy to be generated that can be hot enough and sexy enough to distract us from the obstacle and get us turned on. So our fantasies are our allies. Although many of us are afraid of our fantasies, our fantasies are always trying to do good work for us. They're just trying to lead us into arousal and pleasure, which is why I talk so much about there being a deficit of psychological arousal because our our fantasies are our biggest allies. And do you think within the context of of the couples that you see that fantasy becomes threatening to relationship because people fantasize about people who aren't their partner? Or what what typically comes up as the reason why people are scared to lean into that to get themselves to? You know, I think it's mainly a fear of being judged. Am I uh, perverse? Am I normal? It's a confusion around if I introduce this, if I say... uh, You know, I was just working with a a couple and she enjoys watching porn and she enjoys watching like orgy scenes. And I think her boyfriend saw that and was like, oh, well, let's become swingers or let's go to an orgy. And like, (laughs) that was like the last thing on, on her mind, right? Like, why can't we distinguish between fantasy and reality? And that, you know, we don't want to make our fantasies uh, come true. Now, you, you raised something interesting, which is, what if I'm fantasizing about someone else? And what if I'm fantasizing about someone else, you know, during sex, you know? What, what does that mean? I'm not into the sex, I'm, I'm bored, I secretly wanna have an affair. Again, I don't think we should be judging our fantasies. I think we should be creating a play space for them to emerge. And those fantasies, whatever they are, have to be arousing enough to turn us on in light of all the turnoffs that are around us, right? So if I am, let's just say I'm a woman and I'm somehow fantasizing about the best man that was at my wedding, that's my husband's, you know, best friend. Well, hey, look, maybe there's two kids in the other room. Maybe there's work that has to be done. Maybe there are deadlines. Maybe my mother is hassling me. Maybe all of that is getting in the way of sex and no sexual touch is going to feel sexual because I just can't let myself go there. Well, then we need, we need something psychologically potent to help us get into that aroused state. Mm-hmm. So you brought up porn and I thought this was fascinating. So I had always assumed probably just from reading various headlines and not reading the stories that porn, and I know that you obviously take great pains to distinguish between ethical porn and problematic porn and all of that is a given. So we're only talking about ethical porn here. But that even so, I had thought that porn would could would dampen desire or that it was creating dysfunction. And maybe it is just creating dysfunction in young boys who haven't really had a lot of intimate encounters. And as you make that you point out Cindy Gallup's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> TED Talk, where yeah. she's like, I don't want you to come on yeah. my face. But you sort of cite research that suggests the opposite, uh-huh. that porn is very helpful, which is not what I expected to find. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, first of all, I want to say on young men who 
find that they have sexual dysfunction like erectile disorder and, and blame porn, what I have found to actually be the case is that porn is easy, right? Masturbation for most of us can be a pretty easy experience. There's no one looking over our shoulder. There's nobody we have to worry about or please. Porn is giving us all of this visual novelty. And you know what? Sex with another person can be complicated. I think it's better in the end. I know very few people who would rather masturbate than, than be touched. But once you're getting interpersonal, it just requires more attention. It requires more work. So I don't think it's that like porn gives you bad erections. I just think it's that porn is easy and it's easier to get an erection. Mm -hmm. Back to your comment, I, I don't actually don't remember. It came out of the Journal of Sexual Research and it, and it, it was just part of a growing body of literature that's trying to destigmatize porn, take it sort of out of this alarmist culture, sort of make it a choice of erotic material for someone. And, and yes, it was found that, you know, for couples, porn doesn't, doesn't diminish desire. In fact, watching it either on your own leading up to sex or watching it together can be highly arousing, right? So it can really add some valence into sort of our erotic atmosphere. Yeah, you write, researcher Nicole Prouse and psychologist James Faust measured sexual arousal in 280 men and found that viewing more porn increased the participants' arousal to less explicit material. Yeah. It also increased their desire for sex with a partner. Yep. Rather than reduce an interest in real sex, porn appeared to improve these men's responses to real life cues and made them more desirous of real physical intimacy. So interesting and so counter to what I think so many of us have been told that porn is threatening, not only because your partner is engaging with someone who is not you, yeah, <laughs> but that it would make the real thing less compelling. Yeah. Well, but I, it seems I, like it's the opposite. But I think we're entering an era where, you know, porn is sort of being destigmatized. I, I work with plenty of especially younger couples where they enjoy porn together and they have a really fun sex life, watch it individually. You know, uh, it used to be assumed that only men watch porn, but I encounter probably almost just as many women. I won't say as many women as men, but a lot of women also just enjoying it. And it kind of comes down to a question that I often ask couples, once I hear about their sex scripts and sort of the, the physical behaviors they engage in, I say, well, what do you do to generate arousal with your minds? How do you, how do you generate that mind-based arousal? So whether it's watching porn, whether it's listening to a sexy podcast, whether it's reading erotic literature, those are all easier experiences, I think, in that we're taking in someone else's material. But some of us may be able to look each other right in the eye and, you know, fantasize. So I think porn just sort of has its place in sort of, you know, being one of the ways in which one of the tools we can use to generate that mind-based arousal. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. 
Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. I'm going to out myself as not a major um, purveyor of porn, but in the context of orgasms, and this is what you also hear, is that it shows women achieving orgasms sort of like very loudly and easily and without anything other than just like being pounded, right? So I'm sure the porn that we're actually talking about is much more nuanced in the way that it depicts female pleasure. But how do we culturally start to... And I loved the conversation about orgasm and how forcing orgasm can also be in its own way kind of a trauma. But And that as a culture, orgasms are amazing, but we need to focus on these other things, the outer course, the other types of touch. And you talk a little bit about research that's recent about sort of the physical difference, like how women's anatomy can determine mm-hmm. the types of orgasm that are most achievable for them. How do we get... Like without rehabbing sex ed, which obviously needs to happen, how can people become more aware of how they're uniquely built? Right, right. So, you know, A, you're right. Like we grow up in the shadow of the intercourse discourse. So, you know, we expect, you know, intercourse, that pounding to be able to provide the pleasure. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and we know, and this was my first book, She Comes First, that, you know, I, I, I said that we're going through a plague of illiteracy. And and I still believe that that is somewhat true today, re- remarkably, la- that we just don't get that the clitoris is the powerhouse of the orgasm. And I think the study that you were referring to was the one that talks about the clitorovaginal distance, the distance between sort of yes, the, the head. the 2.5 centimeters. Yeah, 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 that makes a big difference because there is a distance between the glands of the clitoris, the head of the clitoris and the the vaginal entrance. And so most sexual positions, most intercourse positions, you know, only intermittently or fail completely to stimulate the clitoris. And the closer one's clitoris is to the vaginal entrance, and there is variation, you know, in, in centimeters can make a big difference in terms of being able to have orgasms through intercourse, which might be why a lot of women say, well, that's a vaginal orgasm right? It's still a clitoral orgasm. It's just the clitoris, the glands of the clitoris is closer to the vaginal entrance, the vestibule. And so there's more chance of an orgasm happening. Interesting. And you, but you asked a question like, how do we get that knowledge out there? Or how do we, you know? Yeah. You can only see so many people. I know you're writing books, but. Yeah. I mean, I am encouraged that first of all, I will say that many couples come in and understand still, again, we're talking about heterosexual couples, they're having intercourse, but they recognize that there needs to be clitoral stimulation as well. And so we're also going through a renaissance in sex toys, where there are so many Mm -hmm. fabulous, beautiful, amazingly designed sex toys. And I find it so interesting that so many couples are incorporating those sex toys into the actual sex. And so I think there's increasingly space for clitoral stimulation during intercourse to happen. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the 
the boom in, in sex toys. Uh, I'm not encouraged by sex education in this country at all. And <laughs> I'm not so impressed with, you know, a couple's ability to, to talk about this stuff and for a woman to yeah. be clear about her needs and desires or for a man to be genuinely curious and, and open. So I think it remains a challenge. Yeah. I love, though, and I think it's an it's a really good framework to think about the this idea that there are three types of sex. This is, I guess, for heteronormative couples, which is procreative and then recreational and relational, which gay couples would be doing recreational and relational sex, probably not procreative. And I think it's interesting because like procreative sex sucks. I think anyone who has tried to get pregnant it's really fun. It's really fun to pee on sticks yeah. and have sex on command. But but sort of taking that out and then focusing on either the recreational or relational is maybe a good framework absolutely. for how we think about our sex lives. Yeah, just a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, penis and vagina intercourse is the procreative way of having sex. But damn, that's what it's good for. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for relational or recreational sex, or it doesn't mean it's, you know, needs to be the dominant form of, you know, interaction. I think I think what starts to happen in our culture, though, and this is perpetuated by couples therapists, it's perpetuated by media is we kind of get stuck in relational sex. We get stuck in the relational, right? We we no longer are in a purely procreative model, you know, unless we're extremely abiding of, of certain religions, you know, we can kind of dispense with the procreative model. But then what happens is that we sort of get into this, you know, relational model. And look, when it's working, when sex is a form of intimacy and merging and uh, lovemaking and a really, um, you know, dissolution of self boundaries. I mean, it's fantastic. It's such a, a relation, a relationship boost and an expression of love that only sex can provide. But very often, you know, relational sex can become really rote, it can become really uh, predictable, it can stop serving our need for kind of sexual expansiveness, which is what recreational sex can do, right? Embracing the kinky aspects of sex, embracing variety, embracing that psychological stimuli, right? I think that's where, especially for heterosexual couples, we don't know how to integrate the relational with the recreational. I call it rec-relational sex. And so, yeah, I think for, for most of us, it's about bringing the recreational into the relational. Or just letting the recreational take over and recognizing that every relationship is going to have its its phase, right? Maybe you start relationally, you move into procreation, and then you get recreation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why, why, why isn't rec exactly? And why isn't like why is recreational sex stigmatized and re relational sex so? you know, valorized. I mean, why can't we enjoy a sexual experimentation and, and casual sex and all the different types of sex that we want to have, you know, over the life cycle? I think, you know, relational sex sort of just gets extolled and we kind of lose the recreational. But I think that those categories are really helpful, even as signposts, even when you're dating and you're like, this is just recreational. Yeah. Like, there's something about even stating that and being clear about your intentions that maybe people won't get so confused because I think that they all get conflated 
and then you're not on the same page and then it becomes then we really get stuck in these stories yeah yeah i think what you're saying elise is sex has many different expressions and many different uses at different times in our life and think about the sex that you're having think about the sex that you want to be having which really comes down to the basic concept of the sex script that i write about whether you're single or you know, in a relationship, you know, getting to know yourself and the things that you desire and that give you pleasure in a way that you can communicate about it and and make it part of the sex that you're having. So there isn't a, a gap between the sex that's in your mind and what's actually happening in the bedroom. I love Ian Kerner's gentle and thoughtful rebrand of sex into its three disparate parts, procreation, recreation, and relation, because I think it takes a lot of pressure off, or it has the opportunity to, to stop making sex always about so many things when maybe it just needs to be fun. His book this last one, so tell me about the last time you had sex, is literally an encyclopedia of sexual know-how with diagrams and a lot of detail. We got to really only the very beginning. He also offers a really quick and fun survey of how, within the context of religion and early prehistory, sex got its bad name, which you know I am always here for one of those conversations. All right. Thanks for joining. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at the Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes. And to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.